0: Hello and welcome to episode three of the Privacy Podcast brought to you by Buck a professional corporation, a law firm up and down the West Coast with nine offices in California, Arizona, Oregon, and Washington. I'm joined today by Carrie Barnes, a shareholder in our Orange County office, and Carl Gerner, an associate in our Seattle office. Thank you both for joining me. Carrie, because this is your first time on the podcast, why don't you give a little introduction? Tell us what you do outside of the privacy world and what you do inside the privacy world.
1: My name is Carrie Barnes. I'm one of our shareholders at Buckhalter in our intellectual property group. So I deal a lot with technology, um, mostly in patents and trademarks and copyrights, and with the evolution of the various. Privacy policies. I work with a lot of companies that do remote access to applications and to computers, um, authentication systems, data transfer. Uh, So, a lot of the questions that I was getting from my clients overlapped with the data policies that were required under uh, these various laws that are now coming out. And so, I work with people like Carl and come up with policies at the front end as they are implementing websites, as they are implementing whatever their inventions are to make sure that they are compliant with the privacy laws.
0: Well, great, thank you. And Carl, welcome back. Hope you're doing well.
1: Thanks, doing great up in Seattle.
0: So today we do a very interesting show. Uh, Let's start off with just a few announcements and updates. most important date of the privacy world, in California at least, has come and passed. That is July 1st, 2020. Happy CCPA Enforcement Day, everybody. Uh, And while we do not know if the Attorney General is going to start enforcing it, given that the final regulations have not been officially approved, they could. The CCPA is active, and we've passed the date that was provided in the statute. So, uh, just everybody keep in mind that this law is active. This law is something that needs to be followed. So, congratulations, Carl, congratulations, Carrie. Welcome to the CCPA world.
2: My my last takeaway is that the Attorney General's statement released on July 1st was very short, but the the one thing that it really called out was this do not sell my information link. So, it seems like me to me. So, it seems like to me that that is the attorney general signaling where these things, where his efforts are going to be focused initially. If there's if there's ever a statement, um, this, is, this is the one he's made indicating what's a priority. I would make sure that my website either has that link or doesn't need to have that link under the law, um, because in a three and a half paragraph announcement, that was the only focus.
0: Uh, And second of all, uh, something that we talked about on our very first episode of this podcast, the California Privacy Rights Act has qualified for the ballot. So the CPRA, which would amend the CCPA, is going to be on the November ballot. There was some speculation early on, maybe just by me, that uh, Alistair McTaggart and his organization would reach some sort of deal with the California legislature, again, as they did with the CCPA. It doesn't seem like it's going to happen this time. Um, Mr. McTaggart has specifically said that, um, that that's unlikely to happen and some of the Senate Democrats that he worked with agreed that this is something that should go to the legisla- uh, to the voters and based on the California referendum process that would make this bill much more permanent than something that were done by the legislature and could be undone by the legislature. So the... Californians for Consumer Privacy, Alistair McTaggart's group have said that the CPRA is polling at something like 88%. Uh, it, it seems like it's going to pass. It seems like it seemed like the CCPA would have passed if uh, if it had not been pulled off of the referendum process a few years ago. It seems like the CPRA is going to pass. And what that means, I think most I think that the biggest Effect of this is going to be the creation of a new administrative agency that will take over privacy enforcement from the attorney general's office This also means that a lot of Enforcement will be brought through administrative fines instead of Civil litigation, which as we all know There are a lot fewer steps and a lot less money and effort Required for an administrative agency to levy fines instead of Bringing it through the court process. So I think it's pretty fair to say that we're going to see a lot more enforcement under the CPRA than we would have uh, if the CCPA had not been amended. Would you agree with that, Carrie?
1: So to some extent, yes, but it's going to matter whether, like you mentioned, they do create this enforcement body. If it's going to stay under the AG, um, it's going to depend on what their primary focus is, who that is, what the timing is we had something similar on the patent side where enforcement for patent markings was under the court system and then it moved under an administrative enforcement and we've seen very little action because there wasn't anything that was set up behind it to encourage the enforcement now that is a little less uh, Person driven than the uh, CPRA and the consumer protection rights, who really cares if your patent's marked on a product properly or not. Whereas protecting your privacy information, this is a very hot topic, but it's going to depend on what the public sentiment is at that time, unless there is an enforcement body that's created, I think.
0: Yeah, w- this is obviously something we're going to have to see how it plays out. Uh, it just seems like. We know that the difference between filing a complaint and fighting with lawyers and going in front of a a judge, not necessarily an administrative law judge, is one that was always flagged as kind of one of the impediments to bringing effective action, especially in the case of kind of minor infringements in which it wouldn't necessarily be worth it. So uh, we may see small fines now in, in a way that we wouldn't have seen if you could only bring it through court action, but we'll see. So, moving on to our first two topics. Today, our two topics are somewhat related, but also their own distinct issues. Both topics relate to the Attorney General's final regs, which have not been approved, but which there's a decent chance will be. And they both, both of our topics involve certain parts of the regs that are a little unclear, or at least that we've flagged as meriting further discussion. So, the first topic is cookies and the difference between permanent identifiers and single session cookies, and under what circumstances those might constitute personal information under the CCPA and would then need to be protected under the CCPA. Our second topic deals with do not track systems that are in web browsers because there's a portion of the AG's regs that treat a do not track signal or that may treat a do not track signal as a as an opt out under the CCPA and that's something we're going to be talking about. So first let's talk about cookies. Now cookies are tiny bits of code that are stored when somebody visits a website. Uh, Carl is going to be able to explain this much better than I do, but the draft regs say that personal identifiers that permanent identifiers are personal information. That's no surprise, but that single session cookies are not personal identification unless they can be related to a person, household or device on a case-by-case basis. Now, Carl, you are the one who understands the tech here the best. So let's say that I go on to carl.com. Can you explain to me how cookies work and the difference between a permanent identifier and a single session cookie?
2: Sure. So the way that cookies function in in, um in the scheme of the internet is like you said cookies are a little text file that is saved by your browser Um, so you have google chrome or microsoft edge or some other browser Um, there's a little file in there that's stored and it's a piece of text and it might contain uh, an identifier that tells the website who you are or it might contain the fact that your language preference is English. But those are those are stored on your computer. And also in that file, along with the identifier, whatever the content is, there's a retention period. And that retention period is set either as for the length of your session or some other duration. Um, depending on the cookie, it could be two months, it could be two years. Um, that, that just depends on um, the choice of whoever's placing the cookie. So the focus of whether a cookie is a session cookie or a permanent cookie um, isn't always material to whether the cookie is personal information. Often, these session cookies are used to identify things that are relevant to just your visit during that one time. So to remember what pages you've been to to assist with page navigation. or to remember that you've changed um, some setting on the website, like your language preference for the duration of your visit. Um, and so long as that information isn't associated with you or a profile that the website or someone else has on you, it's not necessarily personal information because it can't be associated with you. But it because cookies are stored on your browser and the website you're visiting is able to communicate with your browser, the website you're visiting has the ability to know what's in that cookie. So if the website you're visiting asks what's in that cookie and your browser tells it, then it doesn't really matter whether or not the cookie is a session cookie in the scheme of things because the website can store the information for longer than the retention period on
0: the cookie. So the hook for this is that part of the ccpa draft regs in the appendix says that they're exempting session cookies from the ccpa's definition of unique personal identifier and then it says um if a session cookie or i should say that the comment was asking to uh, the ag to exempt session cookies from the definition of unique personal identifier and the ag responded that as currently stands If a session cookie cannot be used to recognize consumer, family, or device, it would not fall within that definition. But this is fact-specific and contextual. So we're dealing with automated systems here. But the automated systems are not going to be able to treat these things differently on a case-by-case basis. So what you're talking about is that a cookie may have personal information or it may not. But the computer needs to know how to treat it without regard to that. How can we, how do you think this comment by the AG affects website operators and how they need to deal with this type of information that their website is dealing with on a regular basis?
2: What the CCPA has done in getting involved in whether cookies contain personal information or not is transferred responsibility for what is contained on a website to the owners and operators of websites in a way that many businesses really haven't had to think about or worry about before so it has really put the onus of whether any particular cookie on a website is transferring personal information on the operator of that website and it has made it the responsibility of the website operator to understand what each of those cookies does, so not to just throw on um, third-party integrations or embed videos from some provider they're not familiar with. It it is really put the burden on the website operator, the business, to thoroughly understand what the applicable terms of use are for any product that they put into their website, and and how it technically functions. If they don't have a a binding legal statement um, from that provider as to how they're going to use information.
1: To what Carl was just talking about, for a lot of companies that use a website creation where you drag and drop widgets and features and all those attributes, that is where it's going to get difficult. You've, You've started a company or you have an established company and you go to a web creation page and you're dropping in widgets you're putting in the form fillable all of those attributes that most people in their everyday lives have no idea what is going on behind the scenes and like carl mentioned that has transferred the obligations to that individual or that company to understand the technology ramifications of what's happening on their website and it could be a clothing store it can be um any entity that is not technologically savvy to now have to understand what their website is doing.
0: So let's say that I start, I, de- I decide that I want to start a, a blog where I'm writing about California data privacy. So I go and I book dot and on it I, I use WordPress, uh, I look through a bunch of free plugins and pick the ones I want. I want to have, I wanted to track the number of people who come on. I want to track, I want to allow people to sign up for my newsletter. I want to include the odd recipe of something I've been cooking. And so there's a plugin I use that lets me format those recipe cards. Or let's say I want to embed a video from YouTube and let's not say YouTube, let's say some anonymous, some
1: sharing platform,
0: some video sharing platform. Um, some video sharing platform on a website that you would have an account to. Um, and so now when you go to California privacy.com, when Carrie logs on Carrie's computer is receiving and transmitting and receiving data from the servers of each one of those plugins, including MeTube.com. So, and what it might do is also communicate that, Oh, Carrie has an account at metube.com, let's take this video that she just watched that was embedded at californiadataprivacy.com, and now when Carrie logs on to her account at Metube later, tomorrow, next week, whatever, the fact that she watched this video is reflected in her watch history, in her preferences of what gets populated as suggestions, things like that. So that's all a situation where simply by virtue of The person logging on to a website and not having any deliberate interaction with these sites, it's happening. The information is being transmitted back and forth. Now, the question is, have these other companies done anything untoward with the data that would take them out of the role of service provider and move them into third party that would make me, as CaliforniaDataPrivacy.com's owner, in any way liable? So does that sound like kind of what we're dealing with here, Carrie?
1: Your scenario goes a bit beyond our initial discussion on just the cookies, but there are certainly aspects of your scenario that play in. So your example of using a video that is able to retain that you watched that video, that is likely saved in a cookie. And depending on that relationship of you having put that portal or that interface that widget onto your website when you go to that that video sharing platform now they likely know that your platform saved that cookie and you are providing access to this other platform now into your cookies and that is where the cookie discussion comes in so you've put a a widget onto your website, you've plugged in some other user attribute and you may or may not know what information they are saving so that you can use it for their own benefits. And that's where the crossover comes in. And I'm sure Carl has some other additions as far as the specific question you asked of do they become a service provider or a third party at that point.
2: Companies can think of their website like like Having a physical store, when you have someone, a service provider or a third party um, that that is putting a a video on your website, you have someone, a contractor or a third party, standing in your store, showing your customers this video, and they have the ability to talk to your customers. So when you're inviting someone to come stand into your store, you need to trust that that person is going to have appropriate exchanges with your customer. When you place a feature, whether it's a video or some other embedded feature on your website that allows that person to, whether it's place cookies or somehow interact with their customer, it's important for the company to have an understanding of what that provider agrees to do and to trust that technically that's actually what's happening. So it's important when you are placing um, different technologies on your website that you review the terms of use and the privacy policies that are applicable to those things Um, and and really to just use some common sense because when you're introducing those service providers or third parties into your website, you're introducing them into your client and your customer relationships.
0: The other major player, of course, we have to think about because their technology in at least one small way resembles what we're talking about here is the Facebook pixel. Uh, Now, Facebook has taken the position that their Facebook pixel tracking software is not something that is subject to the CCPA. Um, We'll see what ends up happening with that. But at the very least uh, the Facebook pixel works by picking up by when somebody goes to a website where the pixel code is in the heading, picking up some data from the visitor's cookies or browser or something along those lines and using that to kind of implement the tracking software. So Carl, can you explain to what extent the pixel, I guess very broad strokes, how the pixel works or how it's related to cookies and whether you think um, this draft rig, just to keep specific, whether this regulation as to session cookies not being P.I. would apply to the pixel.
2: Yeah, the pixel, Facebook's pixel is just another tool that can be used to inform um, websites and Facebook about how users interact with the website. And the way that pixels work specifically, they they work sometimes in conjunction with cookies. But the way that they work is there's, they're essentially an image. They're a one pixel by one pixel image on the website that you visit. So when I pull up the website that you've created, it loads the image. And when it loads the image, it's pulling the image from whatever server it's sitting on um, to show it to you. So when that little pixel loads on the page, Facebook, has the server that that pixel sits on, and your computer calls Facebook to say, what image should I put here? So in that interaction, Facebook gets, at minimum, your IP address, and they can use that to then follow which webs you go to and any other specific information that the website has set up, right, if they put the pixel on certain pages. and have it set up correctly, it can tell when you take certain actions on those pages. Um, but that's that's the basic idea there.
0: Great. So yes, that, that's a really good description of how the pixel works. Is there some way that the rules that are going to be applied either to permanent identifiers or to session cookies in some way puts the pixel under the spotlight in a way that may run afoul of the CCPA?
2: Sure. So whether or not the pixel runs afoul of anything in the CCPA on either Facebook's behalf or or, um, the website owner's behalf. Um, I often tell people that if they're going to use these technologies because of the uncertainty around how the regulations and the statute will be interpreted, um, it's something of a risk-based approach and they need to consider whether or not they should offer users of the website the ability to opt out of of that tracking or sharing of that information. That takes potentially some technical expertise and um, web design know-how in order to build an opt-out mechanism because as of this recording, I'm not aware that Facebook provides that option for people to opt out. But it is possible you know it looks like basically the owner of the website installs code that has a cookie that loads before anything else on the page and the cookie says this person has opted out or not and if they've opted out then it prevents any any of those other tracking technologies from loading um but again you know this is kind of the point of how the ccpa has shifted things it puts the burden on the owner of the site to be responsible for knowing Whether or not these things are sales and making that determination for themselves because it affects their customers. Well,
0: and something that you pointed out before we got on the mic is that there is this tech uh, protest against Facebook going on right now where these companies are not buying Facebook ads. And what seems like an altruistic protest may have something else behind it. Do you want to expand on that?
2: So, being the ever paranoid privacy attorney. Um, You know, I I just can't help but but think that um, brands suddenly limiting and pulling back their advertising on Facebook, um, what a, what coincidental timing that is. Um, You know, July 1st was yesterday, only a few days in advance of kind of the rubber meeting the road on whether these transfers of information to Facebook is a sale. Um, and brands stopped sharing that information. I have to wonder if that played a role in in that decision at all. Um, It's entirely possible, you know, or even likely that it didn't, but just a day or two in advance seems like pretty convenient timing to me.
0: All right, well, unless anybody has any final thoughts on that, we'll turn to our second topic, we're going to be talking about do not track systems. So what a do not track system is, is essentially a preference that has been collected in a web browser that says the user of this web browser op- uh, opts out of tracking. Now, there is some doubt, probably warranted, that do not track really does anything. There isn't any sort of legal mechanism forcing companies to comp- to comply with it, but Most browsers these days have some sort of way that you can indicate "Do not track my data across the internet." And whether the companies, whether the web browsers, enable that by default or enable or allow it as something that could be enabled, varies from browser to browser. Now, uh, in the Attorney General regs, section nine 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 three one five a, says that an acceptable method of submitting "Do not sell my personal information" includes. Quote, a browser plugin or privacy setting, device setting, or other mechanism that communicate or signal the consumer's choice to opt out of the sale of their personal information. And then 999.315d says if a business collects personal information from consumers online, the business shall treat user-enabled global privacy controls, such as a browser plugin or privacy setting, device setting, or other mechanism that communicate or signal the consumer's choice to opt out of the sale of their personal information as a valid request submitted pursuant to civil code 1798.120 for that browser device, or if known for the consumer. So there's a lot of word salad right there, but essentially what that says is that you can have some sort of a global privacy setting that says, do not sell my personal information. And if you convey that to the website of a company subject to the CCPA, They need to treat that as a do-not-sell-my-information opt-out. So the question though is that we humans use a lot of browsers, we use a lot of devices, and we, one, may not know even what settings they're set to as to whether we have do-not-track enabled, and two, they may conflict. There are many, many other issues involving, uh, in particular, whether the user of the computer can be tracked to a specific person or simply a device or a household, things like that. But the fact that the attorney general regs specifically say this is something companies need to start thinking about and started thinking about yesterday, for that matter, then this is definitely something that companies should flag and will will rely a lot on attorney general guidance down the line. Carrie, did you have any thoughts on this?
1: I think your point is very well made that this is going to be ripe for guidance from the Attorney General, and this has a lot of ambiguity between the do not track or do not watch what I'm doing versus do not sell, um, whether it is for that computer device. I have a computer that sits actually right outside my kitchen that everybody in my household has access to. Actually my five-year-old probably uses it more than anyone. (laughs) And um, so if you can see that information and likely have no idea which individual is actually using it. So therefore what area under the code are you actually operating under? The five-year-old has his own set of rules about whether you can watch what he's doing or not versus me as an adult that can consent to what's happening. Um, So there's going to be a lot of difficulty in using blanket browser settings to then inform decision-making on specific personal information and specific consents that are required for interaction with individuals.
0: What's also important about, the Attorney General Regs on this issue is that it says, if known. So what I'm wondering is, are we going to get a lot of companies like, let's say that, again, I don't want to use any real names here because they may all have specific settings in place. Let's say I go to carl.com. Carl.com is a website that is subject to the CCPA because God knows it brings in $50 million annual revenue. Good job, Carl. So I log on with my Chrome, you know, with my Apple MacBook using my Chrome browser. Chrome has a default setting. Do not track. I then, just because I feel like it, I go to Carl.com once again with my Firefox browser and I do something else on there. Who knows why, but I do. And Firefox doesn't have the setting. Um, let's say then I I visit on my phone or I or I access the proprietary Apple iPhone app that Carl has generated that's tied to his website and they are separate a whole separate set of privacy guidelines uh, privacy opt-ins or opt-outs that are defaulted to my iPhone or maybe that I even chose to implement on my iPhone but they're conflicting they're either conflicting or they're inconsistent with what's on my Apple MacBook. Now, the issue is what what is this company supposed to do? And in particular, when you have a company that may not have a strong online presence, or at least that's not the crux of their company, they're going to run into an issue where they're getting a lot of conflicting information. They don't know exactly what constitutes an opt-in or an opt-out. And if they're attempting to do it on a manual basis, this can be quite a burden. I guess what I'm wondering is if you're a company that either can't deal with this because they don't know what signals to accept from the consumer or simply don't want to because it would be too many opt-ins and opt outs that they have to go back and forth on, are we going to see a lot of companies that just throw their hands up and say, if known, we don't know. We don't know what that means. So we're not going to make any, we're not going to make any change to their preferences?
1: I think it can go either way, that you're gonna have companies that go super conservative and start finding alternatives to selling online. They minimize what their website does so it becomes just informational. They look to Amazon, they look to other online retailers to do their selling for them, to do their interfacing that um, might involve personal information that does, again, introduce a third party into the relationship, but now it is a much more known apparent upfront relationship that you're gonna run into fewer problems. It also limits the information that is likely going to come back that's usable to that company if they are doing their sales through Amazon or something like that. Uh, And then you'll have the other extreme that is more aggressive, that does rely heavily on the I don't know, If you get conflicting information, it does broadcast a lesser, a less firm intent on the part of a a potential consumer that they have opted out um, as opposed to um, one of the the pop-ups or an interface at a specific point of sale or at a specific engagement activity on a website where you've specifically identified an opt-in or an opt-out preference. So I think there are those that will definitely take advantage of this caveat within the the rules, and Carl has a good point on this, and I'll let him take this one on, of where this shows up in the rules, and this is the only place that it does show up in the rules.
2: Right. So this section is the only place where this concept of if known shows up, and it, it gives... Business is kind of a little bit of an out, but it also complicates things for the consumer um, because the consumer, if the consumer's relying on this to to opt them out of the law, um, you know, it leaves them with an uncertain situation of whether the business knows who they are or not. The other way that this section affects businesses is before the CCPA, um, you know, other laws existed. And one of those is the California Online Privacy Protection Act. And that law requires operators of commercial websites to state whether or not they recognize do not track signals. So the effect of this being added into the regulations and that existing law that requires some website operators to, to state whether or not they do that is forcing websites into this position of you either have the statement that says you recognize it or you're not in compliance with the ccpa potentially um and if you don't have the statement then you're not in compliance if you have the statement that you do recognize these signals though but you're not doing it correctly then do you get opened up to a unfair competition law claim or deceptive trade practices Um, because you're now forced to take a position on this by the CCPA that you weren't prepared to take because the standards haven't been agreed upon or any number of other reasons.
0: I wonder if as the AG continues to get feedback from practitioners and companies that we have no idea what this means, if we're going to see something like the ubiquitous cookie banner, but now it says something like, we recognize that you have do not track enabled, therefore we have automatically opted you out or something like that. Uh, I mean, that would be quite a step, but it would resolve what Carl you're saying about how consumers are equally confused by whether they've effectively opted out or whether nothing has changed. Um, I don't know that companies would be excited about implementing something like that, but it would certainly clear up some of the issues and, I don't think anybody would be benefited except privacy attorneys if we start seeing all of these UCL complaints based purely on confusion over what the law actually is. Well, thank you guys for joining me. Again, I'm joined today by Carrie Barnes, a shareholder in our Orange County office, and Carl Gerner, an associate in our Seattle office. This is the Privacy Podcast brought to you by Buck Alter. We will be back in two weeks with new hot topics from the privacy world, including if there's any news after the July 1st deadline uh, and we see what starts to happen. So tune in next week. We are on iTunes. We're on Spotify. Uh, listen, subscribe, review any of that. And thank you all for listening.